Hi there, local citizens. Welcome back to the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around manifesting a new world. I am your host, Florence Adu, coming to you from, yes, folks, I'm back in the tropics. I'm back in Accra. And I know you all are going to get annoyed with me because I'm, I've been talking about this for a few months now, but this harmaton has not left. It is relentless. And so I'm going to ask everyone again, let's be conscious of our earth because this is all global warming, folks. Those of you who are living in any part of the world that has winter, you can probably attest to the fact that you have had a mild one, unless you're someplace where you've had a really extreme one. So, I mean, let's just love Earth because she's going to win no matter what, okay? So just keep that in mind. And with that in mind and thinking about love, I am so, so, so excited about my conversation today. And it's so interesting how I met this woman. I met her recently in December and it is a typical like, (laughs) I mean, it was a meeting in the ladies room, folks. I don't know if any of you all know that, know that song. I got a meeting in the ladies room. Anyway, I'm dating myself maybe. But anyway, so I go to the ladies room. It was this hot party, wonderful party. Shout out DJ MoMA. This was um, the everyday people party in Accra and everyone knows that Ghana was on fire during the holidays. So I go to the ladies room. I come out or no, I was standing waiting and then this woman comes in and she's one of my friends. Well, she's more a friend of a friend, but a friend from New York. And we're like, oh my gosh, what is this? And she happened to be with this, my guest today. And so we did the whole, hey girl, hug, 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 took pictures. And somehow I found out that she was, she does what she does. And I was like, oh my gosh, but we didn't exchange information. So as fate would have it, we ran into each other again. And so that is how the genesis of where we are is today. So let me get right to it. So my guest is a death doula, a recovering attorney, and the founder of Going With Grace, a death doula training and end-of-life planning organization that exists to support people as they answer the question, what must I do to be at peace with myself so that I can live presently and die gracefully? Going with Grace works to improve and redefine the end-of-life experience for people rooted in every community using the individual lived experience as the foundation. She was a keynote speaker at Endwell 2019 and has been featured in the LA Times, Vogue, Refinery29, The Doctors, and In Style, to name a few. She's inspired by the gift of life itself and is always on the quest for the best donuts and fried plantain. Elua Arthur, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Florence. I'm really happy to be here. Yay. So let's jump right in. I kind of gave a little bit of hints to this in my introduction, but let's find out where are you from? Where are you local? And what is your craft? I'm Ghanaian by birth. I grew up in Colorado Springs, Colorado in the States. I currently live in Los Angeles. And the last question was, what is your craft? I'm a death doula. Well, I think my craft is creating opportunities for people to be in relationship with their mortality. I think that's my craft. Mm-hmm. But I'm a death doula, is what we'd call it, generally, and a death educator. I support people as they prepare for death, and I support other people as they learn how to support their friends and families and loved ones through death. Okay, so we're going to get into that, but I want to put a bookmark on that right now. Colorado Springs. So again, folks, you know that I also grew up in Colorado. So this is so interesting. I don't know how we never crossed paths before. <laughs> I don't know that we didn't. 
I mean, you looked a little familiar, but yeah. I can't tell if it's the way that a lot of Ghanaians look familiar. You know what I mean? I'm like, nah, I might know you look like my cousin or something. But it's impossible because we were there at the same time. The community was so small and we had plenty of family friends in Denver, a lot of them. You know, I don't even know. And I'm sure that, I mean, I could say that, I don't know if you ran track or did any sports. No, my sister did. My sister ran track. I played soccer. Is your family still there? No, they're not. I have one aunt that's still there, but my mom is in LA now. My father's in New Jersey. Okay, got it. Well, I lived in my house city. You lived in, you lived even higher. <laughs> we have high altitude in Colorado. Colorado girls in common. Yes, absolutely. That's a nice thing. So rare. Okay. So, so now you're in LA. So why the where? How did you come to be living, working and playing where you are? After a lot of moves and stops along the way, I, let's see, I was born in Ghana. We left when I was about three. We moved around for a while. My father was part of the Hilaliman government that got overthrown. So we were, we bounced. And then we bounced around for a long time. Somewhere along the way, my parents found Jesus and decided to become missionaries. So we started spreading Jesus everywhere. We went back, we went back to Ghana for a couple of years. We went to Kenya for a couple of years. And then we ended up in Colorado Springs, which was the center of the Evangelical Association, basically like in the world. So that's how we were in Colorado. And then I went to high school there, went to college in Connecticut, went back to Colorado for law school, traveled around for a year all over the globe, and then flipped a coin about where to practice law between California and New York. And it came up in New York and I was devastated. So I came to California. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, was it winter? Is that why New York was no good for you? Yeah. Also (laughs) small, you know, so small. And the buildings, you're only seeing slivers of sky at a time in the city. And that, that makes it feel like the world's coming down on me. I need a lot of space. So I came to California instead. Okay. So what is your LA? Where is your LA? I'm in Lamert Park. In the middle of the city. We know that area as well. Okay, cool. So how then does a woman who studied law, lands in LA, transition into being a death doula? How did that happen for you? It was long um, and also instant at the same time. I worked at Legal Aid and I grew terribly depressed while I was working, clinically depressed. And I took a leave of absence, medical leave of absence from work. I went to Cuba and I met a young woman, a fellow traveler who had uterine cancer. And we talked a lot about her life. I asked her so many questions, also about her death. And she shared with me things that she hadn't shared with anybody before about her fears or her hopes or just even the thoughts that she'd been having, existential questions about death and dying. And it got me thinking about how we do it societally and the fact that we don't talk about this. And here I was with a stranger, you know, cocooned in this really special place together where we could have this expansive conversation. And I felt like a conversation like that should be available no matter where you are and at all times, because it taught me a lot even about who I am and what I value, because hearing her talk about her death naturally brought mine into focus. And I thought, well, what has my life been thus far? Like, have I been, am I proud of what I've created? Is this the life that I want? And it, it really had me ask some useful questions of my very, very depressed self. So after that, I came back to the States and was felt like I could probably talk to people about this. I was curious about it myself. So did the old-fashioned way, started picking up books and talking to everybody who talked to me about death and dying. And people were starting to think maybe I'd gone off the rails because, you know, here I am terribly depressed talking about death all the time. And they were like, what's going on? 
But the life was starting to come back in me. I finally, I'd found something that filled me with some like uh, curiosity and purpose simultaneously. And then about six months after I came back from Cuba, my older sister's husband, Peter St. John, got diagnosed with Burkitt's lymphoma. And I moved out to New York where they were. And for two months, I walked him through the end of his life alongside her and my niece and my mom and his parents and his family flying in and out of town. And that's where I learned the work. That's what I saw, what it was. Up until then, it had been a largely theoretical exercise. But next to him in the hospital, running the errands, trying to get answers to questions, it was so difficult. It was it was hard. And I, you know, I, I felt like there should be greater support for this. No matter where I asked, I kept running into dead ends. The person that I was looking for, as far as I knew, didn't exist. And so I decided to go and be that person for other people. So I built the company Going With Grace based off of what I experienced with Peter, what I experienced with the woman in the bus, and what I learned about how we die societally, trying to fill some of those gaps. Wow. And so 10 years on, it sounds like you're to a large extent self-taught. Like, were there organizations? Where did you find resource in other people that helped you to kind of professionalize what it is that you were moving into? Not largely self-taught. I went to a course called The Art of Death Midwifery by an organization called Sacred Crossings in L.A. Uh, There I learned home funerals and uh, caring for bodies at home. And it was very useful, but it didn't get to the heart of what I'd wanted, which was practical, emotional, logistical support. I mean, I do find plenty of value in caring for bodies at home, but the vast majority of the people aren't dying that way, at least in the Western world. And I felt like what I really needed wasn't just that. So I started studying with estate planners. I knew plenty of lawyers. So I started talking to estate planners and I talked to some hospice personnel and a few hospice nurses who became really good friends, EMTs and emergency room folks, just funeral professionals, uh, alternative funeral homes. Anybody who did anything, life insurance, I got like a life insurance, anybody who did anything in a death adjacent field, I sat with, I learned with, I studied from, I worked for, to learn how to do the work in a holistic way. And so I created a practice that looks like that, that yes, absolutely, we can sit and talk about ritualizing, washing of bodies, but we can also... Uh, figure out how to get all of your affairs order um, in order so that when the time comes for you to die, that's all that's left to do. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's so interesting and important that you, do you, do you think that your approach to that holistic piece somehow is also born of your, your legal background, you know, the organization of it all? Do, do you think that that kind of contributed to it? Cause there's that whole emotional piece and the, you know, the physical material side, but then like you said, this, there's a, there's the practical of laying to rest somebody or in that transition. For sure. I think, let me put it this way. I don't disparage any part of my past or my history, right? I'm like, thank God. Thank God. I hated law school. Okay, I was a shit lawyer. I was terrible at it. I was shit. I'd want to sit and like talk to my clients and learn what was going on. And they'd be having domestic violence cases. And I'd care so much about how they got there and how they were feeling through the process and what they needed to move forward. I didn't care about the paperwork. I didn't want to check off the boxes. That was a means to an end. You know, mm-hmm. the, the end is to get her safe. The means of checking off the boxes. But I can get her safe in 15 different ways. You know what I mean? And the way that I was doing it was not the highest call from my spirit. I am details, paperwork, that ain't it. However, 
when talking about it in the death and dying space, it works a little bit easier because I don't have to be the one checking off the boxes. But I can say that you need to consider how do you feel about things that you need to do? Or when I hear things come up when they're talking about planning that point to something else that needs some attention, like leave all my things to my sister, who's my only remaining relative, but we haven't talked in 10 years. Well, then what's going on? You know, then I, as we talk about the practical, we can get to the legal, emotional, spiritual, et cetera. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. I'm grateful I went to law school. Yeah. So that you said that, how did law school happen? What made you think you wanted to be a lawyer? Because I know when I was growing up, I was going to be a doctor. My sister was going to be a lawyer. And then neither of us are neither of those things. So how did law even become a part of your story? Same. Okay. I was always going to be a lawyer. You know, yeah. I'd sit around with my dad's friends and they talk about politics and things happening on the international stage. And I'd want to get in there and debate with them, even though I was like eight. You know what I mean? Um, they called me Madam President when I was really young. Uh, in college, I was the president of the student body. I sat on the board of trustees. I was down for like policy and change and what's happening here and how do we make it better? How do we have access for students of color into this really private liberal arts school, student loans. Like I would just grind, 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 activism, activism, burn the motherfucker down. That's just in my spirit, you know, let's just redo the entire system. And they, they being my dad and my wisest counselors said, well, a great place for this would be in the law because you can have feet on the ground in communities that you care about with policies that you care about. So that's what I did. The real answer is that I, I got in. I wasn't going to go. I was in Thailand working at an HIV and AIDS organization and canceled my return ticket back. And my father threatened me. <laughs> That's how I went to law school. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I wasn't going. I was not going. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds about right. Okay. That's, right. That's the truth. Okay. So, so thinking about the culture. So we just talked a little bit about the culture and our culture and um, funerals are huge in Ghana. It's a huge part of like our everything. And and so growing up in the States, I didn't understand that until before I moved here and, you know, and then, you know, elder family members started to pass as an adult, but I didn't even understand it until maybe the last 10, 15 years. And so did you have any of that kind of exposure to understand? And even more so now, like, Thinking about us in our adulthood and, and coming and being here in Ghana and seeing how how huge funeral culture is, how there's still that missing piece for the kind of, you know, I think we think of death very differently and the, the, the idea of funerals is just a different kind of celebration. But do you see how maybe our culture has built in some of that, some of what you do in your expertise? Ghanaian culture? Ghanaian culture, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, have you been down Mortuary Road? Mm -hmm. I was driving down it and I said, oh, after living in the States for so long, what do you mean the mortuary? You can buy a coffin right on the side of the road? Like it filled my heart in a strange way because I thought, well, these are folks that are driving past this every day. Everybody knows exactly where you go. We have tradition built into the way that we do things. Like even their funeral cloth, you know, you know what you're supposed to wear not black, you wear this cloth that has some of the Adinkra symbols printed on it, Proverbs about life and the way that we do death. It just, it makes sense. It's built in in a way that works much better. On the other hand, I will say that when I first said that I wanted to do this work, my aunt, my aunt cautioned me against telling too many people that this is what I was doing because it was going to be so concerned that, you know, I am, I am, 
a witch or the occult or something of the sort. You know what I mean? So yeah, that's yeah, that was the other side. It's this whole you're too close. Why do you want to be close? Why are you thinking about it so much? What's up with you, girl? But it's nothing other than just service. <laughs> it's just service. And then what about your parents? Because like. Your parents are in the missionary space or were at some point. And so there's a spirit, there's this heavy spiritual influence in your life. And so how is that? And and how do you even, do you even bring any of that in? Like, how is that dealt with in, in your, in your work? Um, my work is secular in nature. I was raised in evangelical, but I asked some hard questions early on, which gave me opportunities to think about spirit matters a different way. I'll put it that way. My work is secular in nature in an effort to create space for whatever the dying person or the family member or circle of support believe. I'm just there to reflect back to them what it is that they're working through. You know, often as people are getting close to the end of life, a lot of questions come up about spiritual matters naturally because they're about about to find out. They are about to find out. And so because of that, I I just reflect, 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 help them get as clear as possible on what they believe. Mm -hmm. So when in the process do people typically kind of come to you? And then and, and how long are your engagements? Is there like months, weeks? It all depends. It all depends. Sometimes it's, I mean, I've had people call me before they were even on hospice. I have people call when there's a day left. We have people call after the death has occurred. And sometimes people call when they're still healthy because they want to do some end of life planning. So this is really like full life cycle type of work. There's been two people thus far that I supported to create their end-of-life plans when they were healthy Mm -hmm. that have now since died. And we use the end-of-life plan to support in their death because I've been practicing for about 10, almost 10 years now also, which means that, you know, a lot of life has been happening for folks. Okay. So in that case, they were just, you know, older people who were kind of just in the estate side of life or they didn't know that they were terminal? Is that kind of... They weren't even sick. One was a 50, I think she was like 55-year-old mom of four who just wanted to get her affairs together because her dad and her mom died in ways that left a big mess for her family. And then she developed breast cancer. This is like three years after we were done with her plan. She developed breast cancer and was sick for a while and then died from the disease. And while she was sick, we revisited the end-of-life plan and made sure everything was in it. Yeah, so not that old and also no real reason to prepare other than foresight, which all have. Wow. So speaking of those you speak with, or just in your life in LA or, you know, times you've spent other places in the the world, I have a global speak question. So we want to hear what you hear. So I ask you to share a word, a phrase, or saying that is a meaningful part of your local experience and why or how you come to value it as global speak. I hear the word sacred a lot. Mm. That's both LA and I think in my workspace. Okay. I hear that word sacred a lot. I think people are really hungry now for some meaning or some purpose. And folks will look to particular practices or rituals to make it such. And those are the things that we call sacred. However, this conversation we're having right now is sacred. The toothpaste I put on my toothbrush is sacred. The fact that I breathe air and exhale carbon dioxide, sacred. You know, the entire ride is sacred. It can all be ritualistic. It can all have meaning, can all be imbued with purpose. And the exclusion of the activities of daily living from the sacred, I don't like. Makes me, it feels yucky. 
I would rather we all just take this whole ride for how sacred it actually is as opposed to just like the new moon rituals or the moment somebody takes their last breath or, you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. It's kind of this begging us to be present. And with intention. Yeah. You know, across the board, we can ritualize anything. It just requires our intention, our attention to it. And when we put it there, then wow, like the whole thing is a miracle. It actually is when we think about it. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, I feel like that perspective puts you in such a perfect place to have these conversations and to have started this business. So you started off as just you and, you know, I don't know how people found you. How did people initially find you and how did you grow into a business? How did, how did it become going with grace? It's been tough. I can imagine. Let's see. After Peter's death, I like threw myself in, right? Learned from anybody, started trying to offer things here and there. People weren't really coming. Nobody was coming. In fact, people were like, what are you doing? What are you talking about? Nobody knew what a death doula was or why they should care. And so I went around to a bunch of hospices to see if they cared a little bit, because at least we were in the same type of workspace. And one did. And they asked me to do like a death and dying day at the parking lot next door to where their office was. So we had like a little fair in the parking lot and folks came and asked questions and they were kind of curious, but some of them were also very dismissive. And from there, one person, I think, followed up to say she knew somebody who knew somebody and it would I mind they needed to like a power of attorney or something like that. And I said, well, shoot, I am a lawyer by training. I can do this, even though you don't need to be a lawyer to have power of attorney and to get it signed. Um, so I talked to the client, found out what they needed, created the thing, went And when I was there, I got to talk to him about the rest of his dying. You know, we got to eventually sit bedside. I got to help him get some other things that he wanted for his dying in order. And that was the the first kind of little way in. So there was a lot of word of mouth, like it's mostly word of mouth. Well, it was for a while. Also speaking engagements, I hosted workshops for a while where people First, I'd like beg my friends to come. My mom has been to too many of my workshops. <laughs> I'd beg my family and my friends to come. And then eventually they started, like, they, she just came to everything, bless her. And then, you know, friends of friends started coming. And then before you know, people I didn't know. And then before you know it, somebody had heard something somewhere. And then the work started to spread. And while the work spreaded, the demand spreaded. And as the demand spreaded, the demands on me spreaded. spread. So I started hiring folks. We also started an online training program where we trained death doulas, and now there are doulas in, I think it's 17 countries, although we just launched around 20, around 20 of the students, and there were three new countries represented. So maybe we're at 20 countries now, which is amazing. Wow. Yes, which means that we have a lot of support on the business side with the students and uh, people seeing clients. So you, you, you became curious because you were kind of in this life transition mode. And so when you look at your team and your staff and people that you train, what is the profile? Is there a profile? Like, is there, because I, I immediately think of this is something that someone empathic may or may not be very good at. Like an empath could, could be, you know, just thrown entirely off or be the best resource for this. So what are some of the, the characteristics of the people that you have trained or that you think would be ideal for this type of work? I think in order to do well at this work, be effective at this work, you do have to have a level of comfortability in emotional depth. Mm -hmm. So you got to be down with anger and tears and frustration, or at least you have to be able to be okay in that depth, you know? 
for that reason, as you said, empathic people are both perfect and terrible. But I think I'm highly sensitive and it required me to learn stronger personal boundaries. And I don't just mean like, say this to me, don't say this to me. I also mean, this is my energy. That's your energy. These tears I'm crying now are for you. Now these tears I'm crying now are for me, like to learn where I am and where the person I was serving began. So of the skills necessary to be with dying we or to support other people through it professionally, you need to have some comfort and emotional depth. I'd also say you have to have like a strong personal relationship with death and dying. That doesn't mean you can't have any fear. It just means that you've thought through your relationship with death. Uh, I think folks also need to, or it really helps if you're somebody who is just kind of down for the fringe. You know what I mean? It's kind of in the fringes. You know, we're all kind of weirdos, but the best kind, like the folks that are, are rethinking the way systems are, they're real disruptors, they are uh, thoughtful, they're kind, they're smart, they're grounded, they're disabled, they are queer, they're trans, they are black, they are white, they're older, they're Malaysian, they're young. I was a 19-year-old in one of these courses recently, a flight attendant. They're accountants, they're teachers, they're healers, they're engineers, they're government officials. Anybody who has the willingness to see a different way that we can hold our fellow human in one of the most painful universal experiences comes, and I'm grateful for it. We'll take them all. So I understand that there's an association for of death doulas or for death doulas. And so how does the organization help the, I guess, industry or the sector from a business perspective to, you know, I know you mentioned something, I heard this in one of your talks about kind of a regulatory kind of sense of, you know, being in the space because, you know, people think, oh, quacks, this, that, the other. So, so from a business perspective, how, what role does that play and how has that been helpful to, I guess, legitimizing your work, if, if that's how you want to call it? It's a tricky one because on the one hand, you know, I don't need anybody to tell me that people need support when they're dying and also to tell me how to do that. It's up to each family to decide. However, I do find some benefit in having the National End of Life Doula Alliance. That's NIDA. I think that's who you were talking about. It's a 501 membership organization. So they just exist to organize us and, and um, give us a professional home in some way, a place where we can be with other doulas, where we all have an idea about the shared competencies of the work. You don't have to have gone to the training program. You could be somebody who learned this because of your family or so. Um, and so it exists to support all doulas everywhere. I'm grateful that that exists. I don't know that I'm down yet for any higher level of oversight. I think it takes the agency away from the family members because then it's going to regulate what the doula can and cannot do when they're with them. And I think it also institutionalizes craft that's been done for all time. People have been dying forever. People have been supporting them forever. Yes, we have regulatory agencies now for like money and institution, a system that existed a long time ago, but because of the ways in which people take advantage of it, that doesn't exist in death and dying. I don't think. Yeah. Okay. That makes, makes a lot of sense. I'll have to think through it some more. <laughs> Maybe don't go into it, but I'm not down for it yet. Yeah. I think, yeah, just thinking about it. I, I mean, this is to some extent unchartered, like you said, in a Western context, but and that's kind of why I brought up that we do this in Ghana. We've been doing it in Ghana. Like we've been doing it in most indigenous cultures that have this really close relationship with 
you know, shepherding someone through and even through the post transition, right? So we may not be so great at the the administrative piece, you know, the estate planning and all of those things, you know, I, I mean, it's like pulling teeth. It, it has been, it had been before COVID to pull teeth to get a lot of my family members to to do estate planning and all of that. But in terms of the, I want to say the ritual of like helping someone to transition and helping the families to transition. So then, I mean, I think we've been doing it. So let's talk a little bit more about how you work with the family. So you work with the whole family, but also the individuals. So how is that different? And, and how, how do you see the impacts post-transition for the family? Let's see. For starters, I just want to uh, maybe create a little bit of shared language. It's that when I'm using the word family, I'm not only talking about the biological family. And sometimes I'm not talking about the biological family at all. I'm using it to refer to the circle of support, the people that are around the person who's dying, because quite often it's not somebody that they're related to. You know, let's see. The best way to describe this is that the dying person is at the center of a big, like a slice of a tree bark, mm-hmm. you know, so the rings, the dying person at the very center and around them, their closest people, their chosen people and around them, the friends of those chosen people and around and around and around the rings on the on the bark get whiter and whiter out. And the doula is the one that kind of holds all the rings up where they need to. Is that visual making sense mm-hmm. to you? Yeah, very much so. Mm-hmm. Okay. So when the dying person's at the center, I'm doing my best holding the dying person up. But there are people around the dying person that really need some support. I'm there holding them up as well. Mm-hmm. And then the further back we go, we're just holding up as much as we can. The work looks like advocating for what the dying person wants. Well, first of all, hearing them and then advocating for what they want to the people that need to hear it. Sometimes it's the medical care team. Sometimes it's the family members and the circle of support because people get weird when people are dying. Sometimes it's with the vis-a-vis the funeral home. Sometimes it's with the life insurance company. We're advocates for the dying. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And so thinking about, you know, we've just had this pandemic and I have a sense that you have had, I mean, your business has potentially changed quite a bit or to some extent during in the last three years. So tell us a little bit more about how business has, has changed and where you see, I mean, I'm not saying where you see business, but where you potentially do see other changes in the in, in the work that you do in the, the coming years. Uh, business changed a lot during the pandemic. Well, for starters, the end of life training course was always online. And so that didn't shift. But what happened is that we saw a severe increase in demand for it. The course is more than doubled during that time. So well, that we're seeking to support other people through death went through the roof. And I think it's because we got to see what it was like for a lot of dying people and people weren't down with it. They also maybe had a lot more time and potential to explore things that had been interesting to them and so really jumped on. Um, but aside from that, you know, the capacity to be in person with somebody changed. And I had a hard time with that because what I really love is being in the room and giving hugs and paying attention to what's being said and what's not being said and energetically what's happening, et cetera. But we couldn't do that anymore, which meant that I did all my work on the computer screen. But it was still possible, you know. I could still identify um, a change in a breathing pattern or so via FaceTime um, to just say to the family member, yes, this is normal, or you don't have anything to worry about, or, you know, whatever it is that they need to hear. My job is to support and empower people. It's not to 
I don't have to be in person to do that. So that was one shift is I think we all had to learn to kind of think, rethink what the role could be. But also we just saw a greater focus on a greater spotlight on death. You know, daily numbers of people that were dying and what was going on and ventilators and going to hospitals, never coming back. And people's eyes were just spinning in their heads like, what are you talking about, Willis? And there was like a real awakening for me, uh, which meant that we needed to do more. Uh, the business grew rapidly. You know, at the time the pandemic started, we we had already four staff members or so, and now we're at nine. So we doubled very quickly. The delivery of services changed a bit. We now have a doula matching program as well. And so when people need a death doula, they can reach out and we can put them in touch with the doula that we've trained in their area, which is a service I so love. One of my friends from high school recently reached out and she said, one of her friend's moms is dying and they're looking for a doula and wondered if I knew anybody in their area. Um, they live in D.C. And so I was able to point her to the directory and there's like four in there, which is fantastic. A lot of shifting like we all had to do. But gratefully, the shift happened in the direction of what was necessary, what was needed in society. I feel proud of all of us for, you know, bobbing and weaving with it as best as we could and coming out even stronger, honestly. So you've grown and that was in response to like this, this global challenge that we're having. And so now the, the mindset has changed and do you feel like it's sustained and, you know, people are passing all the time. So it just really isn't about the awareness side of it. So how, how do people know about you now? Is it mostly still word of mouth? Like how, how do you promote being a death doula? Oh, well, I am stumping it a lot. I talk about death and dying everywhere. People let me mostly. Let's see, about probably five years ago, maybe four and a half years ago, uh, a media company called Refinery29 found out about my work and they made this video that went everywhere very quickly. Up until then, I've been making a full-time living as a death doula. I was at multiple streams of income. Don't get me wrong. It's not just about sitting bedside, right? So I was doing the end-of-life planning consultations. I was doing workshops. I was with clients. I was doing speaking engagements. I would work gigs sometimes uh, as a funeral celebrant. Like I was working, 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 working. And I had an assistant during that time. But then with the increased media attention, demand went up for my services and then also the demand for me speaking about the work. So over the past few years, I've watched my role kind of shift from being with the clients to now talking about how we die um, publicly. And I feel really grateful for it. Uh, I just got to be on this TV show in uh, Australia called Limitless with Chris Hemsworth. Oh, nice. Oh, wow. Wow. That's what to look for. Good for you. Okay. I did a death meditation with him. I have a, a book that's coming out 2024. I'm giving a TED Talk on the main stage uh, in April. I get to do a lot of podcast interviews. I feel like the one thing that I hope will never die within me while I'm still alive is my desire to talk about how we die. And every time I do that, I think it brings more awareness and thus means more work for death doulas or more people talking about death and dying. I will also say, though, one thing that happened in the pandemic is that we started to identify and name grief for what it is. And that in and of itself, while people are, you know, back to the a lot of the things that they used to do before, and maybe they're not thinking about how we die so much, they are able to identify grief better. I think we're in, the, in maybe like a crisis of grief right now where people are still trying it on and seeing how it fits and recognizing that it's a very human experience and 
as long as that's happening, I'm down. Like, let's just normalize human, you know, all of it. I'm glad you said that because, you know, I, I lost close family members during the pandemic and watching my other family and even myself, like the grief is real, you know, and I think we, I think we haven't, we don't traditionally give people a lot of space to be in it and to understand it and to, to transition at their pace for it. So I think, yeah, naming it, as you say, is, is a, is a huge part of, you know, our, our ability to be better at living and dying, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So this is a good point for me to ask about mindset. So I ask you about a mindset hack and this is your favorite or an innovative mindset hack. And this is one that you can imagine, one that you practice or one that you know of. Oh, this may not come as a surprise to anybody, but it's a real quick mindset hack to remember that you're going to die. Yes. That will put things in perspective on a dime. Quick. <laughs> so true. Right? Just like, that. Just like that. Also, maybe not always in the way that we think it will. You know, like sometimes if I'm tired and I remember, oh, I'm going to die, the impulse, or we might think that the impulse is to get up and go and do and hustle and, you know, go, 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 BBB, blah, blah, blah. Nah, sometimes it's like, oh, well, if, that, if, I'm, if I'm going to die, then I may as well just be with this moment for what it is. I'm tired. I can rest. But so often in society, we use that idea about I'm going to die to further turn the capitalism wheel of hustle, grind, you know. The YOLO, yeah. Enough. Let's just be with ourselves. That's a hack I enjoy. It's a stress reliever too. Absolutely. I can take the pressure off myself. Yeah, yeah. It's. I mean, it's a, it's a presence maker too, right? So, you know, it's, it's like be present. Yeah, I like that one. That's perfect and perfectly fitting for this conversation. <laughs> so speaking, speaking of that and, and keeping that in, in consciousness, and this is kind of a consciousness kind of question is, you know, you spend a lot of time thinking about and being with this, you know, people in transition. And I know that it's secular, what you, what you work in, but I just get a sense that there's, there's spirit energy that is often around in the conversation, not even in the conversation, but just in the space that you're in. Do you ever, or do you feel, and even in your, with the doulas that you train, do you feel the spirit? Have you had any experiences where you've had kind of this like paranormal-ish type of, you know, phenomenon that, that comes through you or around you in this space? It's hard to tell what's paranormal and what is actually normal. You know, it's hard to tell what maybe some space is created because dying is present that is always present, even when dying isn't, you know, people certainly talk to people I can't see in the corner. They will call names of people who died. They'll reach for somebody or something. Yeah, there are things that are happening that I'm not privy to. And I, I think I like to keep it that way. Yeah, it's for them. Mm-hmm. I get it. Makes sense. Yeah. I'm still here. Let me be here. Right. Wow. Okay. Nice. I don't, I say nice, but I don't know if that's really what I'm meaning to say, but I'm like, okay. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> this is like, you always say nice. Why do you always say nice? I'm like, well, it's like that, that summed it up very well. So I really okay. appreciate that expression. So I should be more expressive about it. <laughs> Got it. Thank you. Okay. Yes. So we've talked a lot about your work as a doula, a death doula, and, you know, your, your travels and, and things like that. So who 
is Elua when she's not working and, and being this, you know, phenomenal businesswoman. Who is she? Is she a listener, a watcher, or a reader? And what are some of your favorite reads, watches, or listens that you'd like to share? Or what, what other things interest you that you'd like to share with our audience? I'm all three, a listener, a watcher, and a reader. Um, but the listening is less podcasts and audiobooks because I forget to listen. I like silence. Yeah, me too. Me so too. I listen a lot to the silence. When I'm in my house, there's nothing playing. There's no music. There's nothing. It's just quiet. I'll go on walks and not put anything in my ear. Just I like the silence. When it's silent out here, I can hear better in here. You know, um, well, since the people are listening, when it's silent in the outside world, I can hear my internal dialogue. I'm using my hands a lot to express what I'm talking about. Okay. Yes. So when it, we're clear. I have been watching something lately and it's just such a fun, I'm not even going to call it guilty because I feel zero guilt about it. It's called Love After Lockup. Oh, okay. Yes, honey. I'm so into it. These prisoners are getting out into the free world and their folks on the other side that have been waiting for them. And their hope about love is something we can all be inspired by. They just have so much hope in love. It tickles me. I love it. I love it. And I'm currently reading Grit and Grace, which is a book about death and dying, but it's also about transpersonal psychology, managerial psychology, and uh, non-duality. Yeah, those are my current reads. Well, that's my current read. Love After Lockup. How did you find that? My sister. I was at my sister's house in Atlanta at the beginning of January, and we were sitting on the couch vegging out, and it came on, and I said, what is this? And I love any of those reality dating shows. I haven't watched, like, Love is Blind or anything, but, like, um, there's one called 90 Day Fiance, the green card one. I enjoyed that one because I love to see people from different places. Well, I like 90 Day Fiance the other way because I like to see people, Americans, going to other places in the world and trying to adapt. And just I shake my head all the time, like, come on, y'all. America's not the center of the universe. I know, right? That's kind of why I thought. <laughs> Okay, so Love After Lockup, 90 Day Fiance, the green card edition. <laughs> green card edition. And Grit and Grace. And Silence. And Silence, yes. The value of silence is immense. We definitely appreciate that as well. So that'll be in the show notes, folks, as well as some other very interesting pieces from the conversation and resources for everyone to take advantage of. Aliwa. It's been so awesome having this conversation with you. I'm just excited to share this information and to just really shine a light on, like you said, there's something, you know, that's guaranteed in, in this existence. And that is that we all will transition. We will all die. So how we approach it, how we embrace it, how we share it is something that we should probably be more conscious of at any age, actually. So, so it's not just when you feel like you've passed, I guess nowadays, middle age is becoming not the right word anymore, which I agree with. Like, you know, people are, are young, younger, longer. So the idea of middle age starting in your 40s, 50s is kind of like, nah, not really. So just at any age, just really recognizing that there is um, there's support and there's a way to move with yourself in the world through all of it. With grace. With grace, exactly. So before we go, do you have any last thoughts that you'd like to share with our audience? As you sit with thoughts of your immortality consistently, expect that the life that you lead around you will change, that you'll hone in on what you value, uh, you'll hone in on what you love, 
And also you might, as a byproduct, create a life that you could one day feel comfortable dying from. Very great words. I'm sure you're so awesome at this. And so I, I'm encouraged that this is an industry that's available and that there's a service that will do this. So thank you so much. Me too. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, yes, yes. All right, Glocal Citizens, this has been another episode of the podcast. You can catch us on Tuesdays with new episodes at GlocalCitizensPod.com or wherever you get your podcasts. That's Apple, Google, Amazon, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, you can find us. And remember, folks, when you like, share, subscribe and tell a friend, it helps other people find great content on the Internet. So let's do us a favor, like, share, subscribe, leave us a review. If you love this episode, leave us a review. We would love to see it, particularly on Apple Podcasts. All right. So that's enough of my, my spiel for this week. <laughs> Until next time, folks. Bye for now. <laughs>